The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everybody. Nice to see everyone tonight. Such a beautiful summer evening. Um, I've been reminding us that just part of the community etiquette is to agree to stay to the end at 8.30. I've noticed off and on there's a tendency for people to leave when we start the Q&A time, usually about 10 minutes to go. And it's just a polite thing to stay to the very end and listen to what community members have to say, the questions they have or comments so that we're here from the beginning to the end together. And uh, if you're new, or if you haven't been in the last few weeks, I've been giving a series of talks on this part of spiritual life you know, that we tend to call in English, ethical conduct and morality. In, Buddha, in Buddhism, rather, the word is sila. And it's interesting, sila, the root of the word means bed, like a garden bed, earth, bedrock. So there's something really important. I've been mentioning this the last few nights about um, sila, the teachings of morality, what's skillful, what's unskillful. I mean, we can get useful pointing out instructions from our wise friends, but it really comes down, ultimately, it comes down to when I do this, act this way, think this way, speak this way, what's the feeling? What's left over in the heart? And you see, it makes a lot of sense then, we become very um, reliant on a mind that is peaceful and clear, so we can notice what's left over when we say or think or do something. You know, unfortunately, most of the time we're distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're busy, we're superficial, we have a fixed idea, we rationalize what we think we should feel when we do something. And so we don't bother to check because we're pretty sure, oh, what I just did, what I just said or thought, that was skillful, so I don't need to check what's left over, how it feels because I've already decided it was skillful, or I already decided it was unskillful. But there's really only way, one way to know, which is that willingness to see. This is why in Buddhism, and I think I mentioned this last week, you know, the Buddha has this very provocative teaching that no matter where you hide, you can't hide from karma. Because if you do something that's skillful or unskillful or somewhere in between, that action, that activity done with intention has left an impression in your heart. So where are you going to hide? It's already, as we say sometimes, it's already part of the mind stream. So who I am right now, this mind that's showing up right now, this moment of mind, this sensitive mind right now, it's the mind or the mind stream that did those things, thought those things earlier this afternoon, right? So I'm, the mind that shows up in each moment 
is the continuation of the mind that did that or didn't do that. So there's no way to hide. We become what we do with intention, is another way to say it. Who we are, like the tendencies of this mind, the qualities of this mind, this mind right now, the way it is, is the continuation of every choice, every skillful and unskillful thing that's been done in the past. So, so much of life is this willingness to listen. You know, so mindfulness is essential to have, uh, to learn how to navigate our lives, to plant seeds of happiness. It's like, you know, a farmer that wants to earn a living and wants to be successful but doesn't bother to learn anything about what seeds to plant, what seeds do well, what you can do to grow a crop. You know, it's, they're not going to be very successful at being a farmer or being a gardener. So we start to pay attention to what are we cultivating. I mean, wouldn't that be a useful question? Can you imagine all those moments in our lives where we've done unskillful things and have paid the consequence for it? Imagine if we had this very wise and kind grandmotherly voice presence that was just asking something simple like, honey, what are you planting right now? What are you growing? You know, what are you setting in motion right here? You know, we would have made different choices if we had been asked that in the right way. You sure you want to be planting this? Is this what you want to set in motion? You know, all those times we were greedy or manipulating or controlling or hateful, wanting to harm, wanting to get even. And it isn't about, you know, the the important thing, it isn't about being good in that abstract sense, like people are going to think I'm bad. I mean, that it has some, that thought that people are going to judge me has some force in our heart. But it's more earthy than that. It's more grounded than that. You know, I was reading, uh, and I read from this morning, uh, an article that Ajahn, Ch- um, not Ajahn Chanako, that Andy Olensky wrote, an organic spirituality. He's uh, he was for a long time the senior scholar and executive director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, on the same campus of Insight Meditation Center and or Society in Massachusetts, and uh, really wonderful practice place. But he talks about you know, the, the sort of indigenous religious spiritual practices in what we now call India. And then um, somewhere long ago, maybe 3,000 or more years ago, the, some of these uh, more masculine spiritual practices came down from the Indo-European Russian steppes and uh, the sky gods, 
and they were, you know, had a priest uh, class, the Brahmins, Aryans, and uh, and so a lot of the more reflective, earthy, connecting with one's own experience that was sort of indigenous to the people there, kind of crept into the background, and every once in a while, sort of showed up in that in Indian culture, you know, and had its effect. And uh, Buddha, the Buddha and what the Buddha had to say really was part of that indigenous spiritual culture in India, even though Hinduism looks a lot more like what came down from the Indo-European area and what's in the Upanishads and some of those scriptural teachings in Hinduism. And it was, it's this very uh, earthy, like, let me be real with what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing here and now, and let this potential to become a skillful, kind, and wise human being not come from worshiping something out there, but from cultivating a very real, a very uh, a relationship with a lot of integrity with what's right here. That goodness, wisdom, kindness, goodness comes from the integrity of our connection with what's here. Real learning, the deepest, the most useful learning comes from being intimate with what's here. Not from some sense of transcendence with some divine presence out there. Please come down from on high and inform me. But it's really about using the mechanisms that we have, like this capacity to be sensitive, to be awake, to see and feel, and cultivating, as I mentioned, this the, the integrity of presence, you could say, with our lives and our relationships and how we're relating and what that sets in motion. As we say, kind of in a kidding Way. It's not rocket science. You know, when I'm greedy, it feels like this. When I'm hateful, it feels like this. When I'm kind, it feels like this. When I'm generous, when I sense connection, it's like this for me. When I feel apart, separate, it, it's like this for me. If I have enough integrity, continuity, trust, and paying attention, and how it is what sets what in motion, well, we can't help but learn. So it's not like I'm being good, I'm being kind, I'm being generous because somebody told me from above, came down and said, you should be kind. But really, morality really arises from paying attention. And that just seems so much more trustworthy. And it's where, you know, this word sila, the Nature, the bed, the bed of nature, the bedrock of nature, the ground of our lives, right? Isn't that, that's a nice word for morality. Because we tend, especially maybe more in the West, I'm not sure so much about other cultures, but, you know, we think it comes out there, you know, from Santa Claus or from some divine moral force that we're trying to attune to as opposed to like the teaching, the Buddhist teaching on karma, which is just 
remember, karma isn't some metaphysical truth. Karma just means that when you pay attention, we realize that action done with intention leaves an impression. Or as one of my teachers, Ruth Dennison, said, you don't get, you, know, you don't get away with nothing, darling. <laughs> she had this great German accent. You don't get away with nothing, darling. So that it, we pay attention because we care about our lives. And we want to understand the law. And the law is, it matters what we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing. How do I know it matters? Not because someone told me it matters, but because when I pay attention, we can actually see what gets set in motion. You know, what, who we're, I mean, in real time, we can sense who we're becoming when we act in this way or that way, when we think in this way or that way, when we speak this way or that way. And so in this sense, real delusion, what's really unskillful is to pretend that it doesn't matter. And I bet if we were honest or attentive, we would have caught ourselves several times today in little and big ways, basically saying some version of, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're thinking that way, Mark, or it doesn't matter if you do that or say that. And the Buddha really made this point strongly, like, that's delusion, thinking that it doesn't matter. And so that's the kind of sensitivity we want to live with, as if everything matters. Not to get tight, like to become morally tight, but actually in order to be happy and free and at ease, we start to pay attention. Because if this kind of instructions, instruction makes you morally tight, then sensitivity, your moral sensitivity will say, that can't be right, because what it's setting in motion is tightness, which is harming myself and getting in the way of me being sensitive. So how could this be the way? Is this the way? I don't think it's the way. Being afraid of making a mistake is a mistake, right? Being tight about needing to be perfect, right, is a problem. So this is the, the cool thing we learn. <laughs> this is why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on the sensitivity that comes from the continuity of present moment awareness. Because it's hard to continue being unskillful or unwise when we have the continuity of present moment awareness. Because we see what that sets in motion. We see it's not working. Honey, this is not the way. And really at the heart of karma, like, you know, just taking the second mindfulness training, the second precept, I undertake the training to refrain from stealing, from taking what hasn't been given to me. So we take that up, and it's it's that resolve, like, to not harm, or to be really careful with my sexual energy to not cause harm, or to be really full of care, with my words, 
so that I don't cause harm, or to be really careful with intoxicants so I don't become careless and cause harm, right? So then, you know, we, we have that resolve, that training, and it really helps illuminate when the force of habit contradicts the resolve to be really awake in my sexual activities so that I'm not causing harm, or to be really awake when I'm speaking so I don't cause harm, or be really awake, sensitive when I'm around intoxicants so I don't set up distractedness, carelessness because I'm intoxicated. And uh, one teacher gives this example of, you know, uh, a great musician who's playing a piece by Mozart. They're not going to generally complain that, oh, I feel so constrained by the notes, you know, that Mozart wrote. You know, it's so oppressive to have to play something written by some guy 500 or whatever it was years ago. Because a really good musician can do something beautiful even within the constraints of playing these notes. So it's the same thing like when we take up some trainings, like undertaking the training not to cause harm or not to use words in ways that cause harm or sexual activity in ways that cause harm or not to take things, not to be in the world of possessions, take things that cause others harm, right? And it can feel a little bit oppressive to have rules. But first of all, nobody's imposing those rules on us, right? We take up those trainings because from our own observations, at least at an initial level, they seem to align with what causes harm and what prevents harm. So like, how many times do we need to act out greed in the area of sexual, sexual relations and cause harm, right? Before we realize, you know what? I want to really pay attention. I want to be really sensitive about what I do with sexual attraction so that I don't cause harm. I mean, just imagine cumulatively in this room, if we somehow could add up all of the suffering we've experienced uh, in our sexual relationships, you know, feeling betrayed, feeling unloved, whatever, you know, all the feeling used, abused in different ways. I mean, it's, or just in the world, how many children have been sexually abused, how many women and other folks have been sexually abused in really ways that have scarred people's lives. So, kind of makes sense. We'd want to be full of care in this place because we sort of, we have a lot of evidence that this is a place where human beings cause harm and suffer because of that, right? So we'd want to be really awake. And so when we take up a set of trainings, like undertaking the training not to cause harm, not to steal, not to take what hasn't been given, to refrain from sexual misconduct, undertaking the training to refrain 
from using words in a way that cause harm, undertaking a training to refrain from using intoxicants in ways that lead to carelessness. Can't we imagine it's like a piece of uh, beautiful music? Yeah, and I'm going to practice, right? I'm going to practice playing this piece of music, dancing my life, navigating my relational life with other human beings, other living beings, but playing according to these notes, to the rules of this song. You know, and if you get enough confidence that a different note would be better, then go ahead and change it, you know. But this is the sort of how we develop our morality. You know, initially, somebody wise, like the Buddha says, you know, notice how when we intentionally cause harm, rationalizing causing harm, all the times we thought the spider didn't matter, and so we crushed it, you know. All the times we, you know, thought those people didn't matter, so we insulted them. We intentionally or unconsciously caused harm. And then when we check in, like we realize, oh yeah, that I didn't plant seeds that led to happiness there. What would be a better way? And this is how we really work with intention. This is from that article by Ajahn Jayasaro, who's uh, one of the senior Western Buddhist monks in the Ajahn Chah Thai forest tradition. The Buddha said that the essence of sila or morality is chetana, which is the Pali word for intention. It is also the essence of karma. From this we can see the fundamental importance of intention. We are only going to be effective in our efforts to avoid creating bad karma and our efforts to create good karma when we have some real-time awareness of intention. So how are you aware of intention? Oh, so how are you aware of intention? It's difficult. It's very difficult to keep track of a moving object if the background for that moving object is multicolored and unstable. But if you have a plain background, you have a grid, then you can follow the movements of a moving object much more easily. Right? And so this is, you know, he's making a case for taking up or aligning our lives with a set of trainings. Like reflecting every day, for example, in the morning, yeah, I really am interested in training navigating my day with this intention not to cause harm. That creates the grid, right? So then in all the little and big ways during the day where we feel inspired to cause harm, then having taken up that training creates the background where we're more likely to notice the intention to want to cause harm, to want to kind of give the finger to the other driver who cut us off, you know, Or in some way, we want them to hurt. They did something bad. They should feel insulted somehow. How can I make them, you know, hurt? 
And so we do what, you know, we think is effective. But then if we have that intention, we said in the morning when our mind was relatively balanced and we were connecting in a deeper, more grounded way, you know, and it really, yeah, no, it doesn't make sense for me to be setting emotion a lot of suffering. And then we'll more likely notice, like maybe before we do it, or maybe even while we're doing it, or maybe 10 seconds after we did it, but more quickly than we would have otherwise, right? Or undertaking the training to refrain from stealing. And to really reflect what that means, like in terms of other people's time, or possessions, or even community possessions, or whatever it might be, you know, how we manipulate the situation to get more than our share. Or even like, are we considerate, are we actually interested in what our share is, just generally, in life? Does that occur to us? What's our share? I find this a very provocative and difficult question in my life. Like when a reasonable request comes my way, somebody needs help, you know, whatever. It could be somebody you see at an intersection and they're asking for help. Or it could be a friend and you're on an email chain and you hear about somebody who's in difficult straits and they're, you know, in a probably way that's not so pleasant for them, they're asking for help. Even something like somebody asking you to help them move, but you really don't want to get involved because you know the place is a mess or you, whatever it is, or you really cherish your weekends and you don't want to give it up to kind of, or your back's a little tender or whatever it might be. I don't really like this friend. I mean, we say these things to ourselves. You know, I, yeah, they are my friend, I care about them, but I really don't want to do that. And then it's like undertaking the training to refrain from taking what's not given. Like, does that intention illuminate this particular situation? Or how much food we take? You know, what we do with our money. Is it really my money? I mean, in a way it is. But does that mean we don't, we can use it however we want? Or is there some responsibility, does some responsibility come with some affluence? Or can we be completely selfish, self-centered about how we spend our money? Do we have some, yeah, some uh, responsibility for those around us, our relatives, the wider world, whatever it might be? I don't know the answers to any of these questions. But I have a sensitive heart, and that sensitive heart has something to say, if I'm willing to listen, right? Because I, I see the email, I see the request, and then I can imagine, like, ignoring it. And I notice, you know, in a subtle way, it haunts me that I haven't responded to the email. It's there. Okay, so eventually if I listen, then okay, let me show up. Let me actually read it, not just scan it, and notice, like as I imagine different kinds of responses, what response feels light and clean? What response feels like the kind of person I want to become or 
feels like the kind of heart I want to inhabit. Right? So it's all about being happy. It's not about like, oh God, I have to be good. I don't want to be good. But it's more like, oh, I get to bring a little bit more of a, a refined attention to what actually sets emotion, leads to, is happiness and leads to happiness. We should be happy to be able to bring more attention to what actually sets emotion happiness. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, this is a really important place to be deeply reflective about the causes for happiness. Do you know anybody who's stingy and greedy and hateful that's happy? Yeah. Were you recently? Oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to... Me! <laughs> you are a brave person. <laughs> Please tell us how you did that. <laughs> There's a little bit more I wanted to read here from this article by Ajahn Jayasaro. Not having precepts, these trainings that I've been talking about, these five trainings, not having precepts imposed upon you, you willingly take them on through a practice in which you consistently are able to live within those boundaries, a growing confidence in yourself arises. So we might call this self-esteem. It's like we sense, right, we're kind of reading in an organic way, we're sort of reading like what feeds happiness. And when we have enough confidence, we make, we make it a resolve. Okay, oh yeah, you know, Gossiping really causes harm, so I'm going to be really careful with my speech. And I'm not going to say things I'm going to later regret about other people. I'm not going to put people down because I know what that feels like. And I know what it feels like when I put, excuse me, when I put people down. So I'm not going to do it. And then when we live up to that at the end of the day, just for one day, or even for one difficult or one challenging social situation where it would have been very easy to gossip, let's say. And then at the end, when we're driving home or something, we remember and what? We feel good. It's kind of like, I could have fallen in a hole, but I didn't. I could be feeling really lousy right now, but I don't. Because I avoided doing that thing that I'm, I have a habit of doing, but I resolved not to. And I lived up to the resolve and it feels good. And the Buddha really encourages us to tap into the good feeling when we're doing living skillfully, when we're being a good person. We want to actually, because it builds momentum, we want to feel, I got through the day, not just what I did that was unskillful, but noticing the skillfulness. And it's like learning to notice negative space, which you know is in a lot of artists, they need the sensitivity, not just what they're painting, but the space around the brush stroke, right? The negative space, the empty space. So it's not like at the end of the day when we do a moral inventory, lying in bed, oh my God, I said that, I did that, I forgot to do, right? And we get haunted. I mean, maybe it's useful because 
it can, the pain of that remorse can encourage us to be more skillful. But it's just maybe even more important to notice what we didn't do that was unskillful. You know, the empty space. Like, I could have gossiped. I could have taken that thing that wasn't mine. I could have manipulated the situation to get this person to go out with me. I could have done, I might have done, but I didn't. And that feels good. It feels really good. The absence of moral regret feels good. Right? Just like people, including, of course, ourselves, the places where we made serious mistakes, where we caused harm, then we make that into a monument of, honey, don't do that again. There's that pain of remorse. It's very real. But there's a lot of places where the opposite is there, where we could have but didn't do something unskillful. We want to really tune into that the bliss of blamelessness or the happiness of non-remorse. It's a real thing, but it's subtle. So we need to develop that sensitivity. I mean, this is uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers. He talks about a time when he was in Burma practicing with Saida, one of his main teachers, Saida Upandita. And he was kind of in a dry, I think he describes it as a dry phase in his practice, struggling a to some degree. And then his teacher, Saida Upandita, said to him, well, reflect on your morality. Reflect on your sila. And, you know, Joseph, like we might think, oh, you're right, I'm bad. You know, but that's not what his teacher meant. Like, reflect on what a good person you've been. Reflect on the goodness in your life so you feel better. It's like, how do we become a person with a lot of self-esteem. Well, we have to notice how we're good. Not just how we're bad. We have to notice how we're good. What we've refrained from doing that we could have done. Moments of generosity, moments of kindness, moments of feeling inclined, feeling the impulse to be hateful, but not picking it up, not acting it out. It's there. We can't really... Nobody in this room, we don't determine what dispositions that the personality has because the dispositions have already been set in motion. But what we do determine is when a disposition has been triggered, tendency has been triggered, what I do with it. Do I act it out you know, unconsciously? Or do I sense, oh yeah, this disposition has been triggered, it feels like this, it looks like this, I'm tasting it, sensing what it, what kind of seeds get planted when I act out this anger. And that reminds me of my resolve. I have undertaken the training to refrain from causing harm to living beings, even eight-legged living beings, right? Or six-legged. Yeah, what do mosquitoes have? Six? Maybe six. Spiders have eight, right? Is that right? Insects mostly have six. So, all-legged creatures, centipedes, millipedes, right? And then it's just, and again, you may end up killing a mosquito and there's no reason to hate yourself, but 
it makes it interesting when we care, when we know that it matters. It definitely matters to the mosquito, right? And, like it or not, it actually matters to ourselves. Like if we have, if we live with the fixed idea that it doesn't matter, just like given, given this example of killing a mosquito, if we live with the fixed idea that it doesn't matter, that's a karmic act. Believing that it doesn't matter leaves an impression on the heart. It's not a neutral thing to moment by moment or as many moments as you do to have that idea, yeah, it doesn't matter. Even if it's mostly unconscious, it affects. We're the person who thinks that doing this to a creature that feels pain and doesn't want to die doesn't matter. That's who we are. We're the... This is the mind stream that thinks it doesn't matter. And the question is, how does that feel to be that mind stream, to be living out of that mind, that heart? I mentioned last week um, this teaching from Ajahn Sumedho if you're frightened by your actions, no good, right? Because we just get tight. We're just afraid of making mistakes. And then he adds, but if you're not frightened by your actions, also no good, right? Because we need to have a healthy sense that it matters, but not so tight that we freeze up because that itself is unskillful, is a cause for harm. And, we, and the idea is to learn. So it's okay when we make, have a moral lapse, not because it's okay, the harm that we've set in motion to ourselves or to others or both, but because it's going to happen anyway and we want to learn from it. One of the great teachers in the Thai forest tradition, a person named Ajahn Mahabua, he died a few years back at 94, I think, but really respected teacher in Thailand. And... Uh, he was a real, you know, didn't really have much education. And before he'd become a Buddhist monk, he was a boxer, Thai boxer. So kind of this kind of earthy, rugged, interface kind of guy. And uh, so one of his states, statements is, our kitchens are crematoriums and our bodies are graveyards. So that's his sort of graphic way of saying, we're living in a world where life eats life, right? So it's a messy world. And it's, there's a lot of power trips going on all the time. My cat catches a mouse, plays with it. It's a power trip, I mean, in a sense. Not so different than, you know, we've heard some stories in the press over the last years, or a couple years, where pharmaceutical companies, you know, charge you know, whatever, $1,000 a dose for certain medications because they can. You know, they've got the patent. There's no competition. They can get away with it, you know. And uh, sometimes shame works. Sometimes shame doesn't work. And so this is, uh, we live very much in this world where power gets to do what power can do. 
and we can play in that world, we can align with that world, or we can be reflective that when power gets to do what power wants to do, then the world feels and looks like this. And it breaks our heart, doesn't it? Because we, we're, if we're willing to be sensitive, we realize how much unnecessary suffering gets set in motion with that. And as a human being, because we have this capacity to be more reflective than most other animals, it seems at least, right? we can see what kind of world gets set in motion and we can make other choices. Like I could, I've got some power in this situation, I could use this power to take advantage, to manipulate, to control, to cause harm, but I don't have to. I could use my power by not using my power or by giving it away in some way or by using it for the common good. Right? And so it's sort of, it, being reflective, then it begs the question, well, what do I do with my privilege, with my power, with my affluence, with my time, and with my life? That feels good. That leads to happiness. Because all that, if we just use power to survive, let's say, right? it doesn't really have anything to do with being happy. I mean, there are a lot of creatures that have survived until they die. It doesn't mean they're happy. It just means they've survived when they might have died. right? So survival is, has nothing really to do with happiness. But when we're in a more primitive way of thinking, then survival seems like the ticket. And of course, there's no end to security. So we have a nice car, but you know, a bigger car would feel more conducive to safety and survival. I have some wealth, but more wealth. I have some protection, but more protection. I have some weapons, but more weapons, right? So there's really no end if we're pursuing safety but love and generosity and living for the common good and taking care of all beings. So this is the thing, because we're not going to survive anyway. <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed. Things come to an end. There's birth and death, and they go together. Not just one. There's the in-breath, and then there's the out-breath. You know? So then, given that this is the world, this is the life, what actually liberates the heart. And morality is this place where we really get clear because it's so earthy. Morality is so earthy in this way. So just before I open it up for conversation, just to, to say these precepts again, this is a slightly different version. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to take only what is freely given to me. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to speak truthfully and kindly. 
Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect the clarity of my mind by avoiding drugs and alcohol. So it would be nice to hear your comments and questions. And in particular, you know, tuning into the second training as we move through them over the next few weeks about refraining, undertaking the training to refrain from stealing or taking what hasn't been given. Just how that might look and feel and what might get in the way and is that a useful training? Yeah, you want to start us off, Tim? Pass it all the way in the back. Good evening. My name is Tim. Um, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about playing music off a page, like from Mozart, for example, because <clears throat> I, I've been doing that more lately, and it's really difficult, and I think what turned me off about it originally was just how dry it is and how like black and white it is, and I'm like... I like colors, therefore, this is not for me. And I look at my moral life very similar to that. It's like, life is its more complicated than what's right and wrong, and there's just a kind of a turn-off about the, kind of the duality of it. But now I see more of the, the, bl- the black and white on the page. is like, it's there to communicate something. The contrast is what yeah. shows you uh, something new, that you might not have seen before. And so now I'm looking at morality as a way not of just like um, making my making better karma or whatever, but actually trying to like understand. Get closer, be more intimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That's Thank great. You. What else, what other thoughts or questions come to mind in the talk? It's just generally reflecting on this whole area. Yeah, please, you want to pass the mic over? Hi, my name is Rebecca. Um, I need help discerning the difference between when it's good to help my friend move, metaphorically, and when it's good for me to refrain from helping my friend move. Um, Sometimes my tendency is to, or a person's tendency is to think that sacrificing yourself is the good thing to do for other people, but I know that that's not exactly what it means to think about how things register as if they feel true and good. Yeah. And when we say sacrifice, it's like when we abandon or put aside our self-centered interests, we're not putting aside, what we're doing is we're, um, in a way, leveling the playing field where we care for living beings. And of course, we're going to be naturally moved by those living beings that are close. And this living being is the closest. So when we abandon self-centeredness, we're not abandoning caring for living beings, which includes ourselves, right? It's just that we're not highlighting it. But it's a very proximate living being. So as we get these requests, right, we're not forgetting our needs. It's just everything's in the mix, and this living being is close. So this is where imagination can be useful. We can imagine, in a sense, you know, just to be provocative, neglecting our needs and taking care of the needs of a friend who's asking for help. 
And we can then, because our imagination is useful, right? As we imagine it, then we can also imagine, well, what would that feel like? Or we can imagine not helping our friend, right? And taking care of our own needs. And we can imagine, well, what would that feel like, right? And we still may not have great clarity. And then we'll say, well, we'll, I'll see what I'll do. Or you can flip a coin. Because the learning comes from doing something in awareness. So that we're, because it may take days before we get some real clarity about that could have been done more skillfully or that I navigated those choices in a pretty skillful way. How do I know? Because the aftertaste in my heart feels pretty light, pretty clean, free of remorse. I don't feel guilty. I don't have remorse. I'm really grateful, right? But, but whether that meant you stayed and took care of yourself or helped your friend or split the difference, right? The key is the key to be really interested. And, you know, it may sound self-centered to rely on what you feel, but if you're healing, hearing something from your friend or hearing something about your friend, that's going to affect your heart too. Just like it affects your heart when we know what's going on with some of these people leaving Guatemala or, or Honduras. There's some really powerful stories in National Public Radio a couple days ago that I heard. They just interviewed a couple brothers, you know, I think they were 14 and 15, and just the trials and tribulations of getting to Mexico, being mugged a couple times, and just the despair, and like, do we turn back and go back to Honduras, and what that was like, and the pressure from the gangs, and do we try to make it, given what's in motion? And, you know, it, I don't have an answer. I don't know how to respond, actually. But I feel what I feel now, right? It's more real, the kind of suffering, the kind of chaos that's there. It's not just some political issue between Democrats and Republicans. They're real people. And this is true with so many of these issues. And are we willing to uh, attune to the complexity, the moral complexity of what's going on, so that our choices are coming out of that rich, messy complexity of needs, our own and everybody else's? And does that bring us more alive, or is it just suffering to be connected in that way and more open to the messy complexity? That's for us to explore, to find our way. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Time for a couple more folks. Yeah, I'd want to pass the mic. Wait for the mic, though, because we're recording tonight, and that way people who listen will hear what you have to say. That's terrific. My question was, are we recording tonight? Yeah. So we are. Thank you. I'm Jenny. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Jenny. Anybody else? Yeah, over here, Femi. First, as always, thank you very much for the oh, teaching. Um, I really appreciate the conversation on Sila. I feel like in the West we don't get enough discussion on Sila. And um, it's been playing itself out some in my life as of late. Um, and, and also particularly how it doesn't have to be an imposition of ideas, thoughts, or morality, but how listening to the body's internal response to how life is moving 
helps to guide the way through the process of how, what this next decision needs to look like. I was driving recently and um, there was a guy coming up behind me and zoom, 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 speeding through traffic, cutting people off. And I was like, mm. <laughs> and then, you know, a few miles up the road, who, who, I look over on the side of the road and who else do I see? None other than my friend, Speedy McSpeederspin. And he's, uh, he's throwing up out of the side of his car. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't my first reaction. My first reaction was score. Like, I was like, all right. Like, karma, baby. Um, and I could see how, like, you know, if, and for a moment, like, I was, I was like, I was, I was like, you know, there's a little that subtle, like, yes, that's what you get. And then the next moment, uh, I, I started paying attention to, like, okay, so how does that feel to be like, that's what you get? And I, listening to the body, it didn't feel good to, to, to have that response to that person. And it wasn't because I told myself I need to be a good or moral person to him. It was because it just didn't feel good to see another human being suffering. The, the next response after that was me debating with myself. Uh, the rational mind trying to justify my initial response. No, he was he was speeding. That's yeah, what, yeah, yeah. That's what happens when you speed. You throw up. Like that's what. Um. So, you know, it, it just is. It's beautiful to see situations like that give me help to give me more faith in the process unfolding itself naturally, organically, yeah. without any imposition, but just commitment to the process unfolds itself. Yeah. No, that's a that's a really powerful example, Femi. And we want to get really, and, and just that moral sensitivity, like to really notice that it's complex with Femi paint, the picture Femi painted. But we often interpret complexity as being stressful. But, it, but remember, complexity is more real. And the, the, the denial or the imposition that it's more simple, like he's just a jerk and he got his just desserts, Right, that may seem simple, but the ignorance of that, like projection, and which means separation from what's real, which is complex, and and there's a lot of humility in what's real. Like even the more I paid attention, you saw more details. We still don't know the whole picture. Maybe he's doing chemo, right, and having a lot of nausea or something. Who knows? And was trying to get to a bathroom. Or something like that. Now I feel really good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Femi's a medical student. Maybe you should have stopped and helped. <laughs> 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 but it, it's humbling. It's really humbling. And the thing is, when we know that we don't know, it's like, what do we do with that? Do we beat ourselves up? Or are we inspired to be even more sensitive in the complexity, right? And you see, that makes us a better, that's what makes us a better person, not knowing what's right and wrong, but willing to be humble and sensitive and to feel, right? Yeah. And we like being around those people. You know, they're not sort of, it's just like we don't want to be around people who are morally certain. It's really hard to be around people who are morally certain, especially Buddhists, <laughs> right? Because it's like we should know better because we talk so much about embodied, 
presence, humility, you know, and it's, it's endemic everywhere, including Buddhist circles. Yeah. Thanks, Femi, for sharing. Femi and Meski just graduated from our Dharma leadership training, I guess it was last Saturday, a week and one day ago. So congratulations to them. <laughs> and there were five other folks. We'll get a photograph in the weekly email if you, if you get the weekly email from the graduation. It's really beautiful. And we recorded, they each gave a relatively short Dharma talk because there were seven of them all together. Uh, six graduated, one's out of the, or out of the state right now. And uh, so you can listen to their Dharma talks too. It's kind of their Dharma stories. It's really beautiful. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate having a little bit of silence together before we end. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.